Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I am your host, Lindsay, and I'm excited to bring you another episode of Year of Polygamy. It's now 2017. We've been talking about this subject for several years now, and I have been busy with a lot of activism and networking and community building with Mormon fundamentalists. And so I have a lot of stories to tell. So I'm excited to bring those episodes over the next few months to you. I want to thank everybody who's been so supportive of this project. Uh, The year of polygamy has certainly changed my life. I know it's really informed the lives of a lot of people, and it couldn't be possible without a community effort. So I really appreciate all those who've been involved, all those guests who've been on the show, all of the people who have sent me good history, all the scholars that put this work together so we could sort of synthesize it and bring it to you. And of course, to everyone that's interested in this, it's fantastic. So many great things are happening in the fundamentalist communities, and we're building and partnering and networking and really starting to reintegrate different groups and have them start having conversations with each other, which is great. This episode is going to be talking about something that is a little sensitive because in Mormonism, it's considered sacred, not secret. Uh, It's the idea of second anointing. But I want to talk about it because all of these doctrines are present in Mormon groups in some form or another, and it just sort of depends on the level of engagement with the certain doctrines. This particular doctrine is an ordinance. Uh, It's the ordinance of the second anointing, and it's something that is rarely, if ever, talked about in mainstream LDS circles, but it's more common in fundamentalist circles. So I want to talk about the history of the second anointing. That's what we're going to talk about today. But we can't talk about the second anointing without talking about what is called the fullness of the priesthood. Now, you're going to hear this word fullness quite a bit. You're going to hear restoration quite a bit. And this is why Mormonism is a restorationist movement, right? For all the non-Mormon listeners out there, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Mormonism is largely about restoring what Joseph Smith saw as ancient biblical practices that had sort of gotten lost throughout time. And it was his job to restore it to the earth. And to restore it, you have to do that in full. And the fullness really is supposed to come through Joseph Smith. Now, it's said that Joseph Smith built the Nauvoo Temple specifically to bring about the fullness of the priesthood, and many people believe the fullness of the priesthood to mean the second anointing. To understand the fullness of the priesthood, you have to understand what Joseph Smith was even trying to establish with the priesthood to begin with. Now, do you remember Apostle George Q. Cannon? He would show up later on in the Frontier era as a member of the First Presidency. He was a polygamist, and we talked about his wife, uh, Martha Hughes Cannon, and uh, sort of his life a little bit. But he would say of Joseph Smith that, quote, Previous to his death, the prophet Joseph Smith manifested great anxiety to see the Nauvoo Temple completed. As most of you who were with the church during this day well know, hurry up the work, brethren, he used to say, let us finish the temple. The Lord has a great endowment in store for you. And I am anxious that the brethren should have their endowments and receive the fullness of the priesthood. He urged the saints continually forward, preaching unto them the importance of completing that building so that therein the ordinances of life and salvation might be administered to the whole people, but especially to the quorums of the holy priesthood. Then, said he, the kingdom will be established, and I do not care what shall become of me. End quote. Now, according to historian John Hadjicek, who presented his paper at the 25th John Whitmer Historical Association Conference, he said, quote, Nobody knows exactly who burned the Nauvoo Temple in Nauvoo, Illinois, in 1848, and motives for such a burning are usually unmentioned beyond brief allusions to arson, 
a fire supposedly started by persecutors remaining from a frontier mob. Construction of the luminous white limestone edifice began in 1841 under the direction of the religious leader Joseph Smith at a cost of one million contemporary dollars. The place of worship was meant to be the grandest building west of Ohio and crown the Mississippi Bluff above Nauvoo, which then exceeded Chicago as the largest city in Illinois. The building is so important to, the, to American history that the Smithsonian Institution displays one of its sun-faced capital stones carved in raised relief next to the original flag Old Glory. The temple was not even close to complete when Smith was killed by enemies in 1844, and it was still unfinished, though roofed, when the Mormons left Nauvoo for the West in 1846, despite a hurried effort to, to make do and use it anyway. The fire in 1848, followed by a tornado-strength wind gust in 1850, kept the building in archaeological rubble for 150 years. However, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, is now speedily rebuilding on the same site, anticipating completion a replicated temple during the fall of 2001 at the cost of $23 million. End quote. Now, of course, we know that the LDS Church did build this new temple, but the temple back then would have been Joseph's uh, sort of completion of him bringing about the fullness of the priesthood. Of course, Joseph Smith is killed before he is able to restore the full priesthood. According to this historian that I just talked to, um, and I'm going to link his paper so you can read it, that once Brigham Young knew that he was getting out of Nauvoo, he repeatedly tried to sell the temple. First, they tried to sell it to the Catholics, but there was you know, no interest in it. And they tried to dress up the top floor, you know, add some paintings and rugs and things like that. And just nobody wanted it. So according to this historian, there's strong evidence to believe that perhaps Brigham Young allowed the temple to be burned by an arson for insurance. And then he goes on to, you know, explain why he believes that, you know, what Brigham's motive would be and Brigham's sort of pattern of doing this in the past. But regardless of who did this, local citizens got the blame, including Joseph Agnew, who would take the fall for the whole thing. Agnew had a history with repaying his grievances with fire. He was part of the mob action against the Mormons, and in 1845 even set some stairs of a Mormon home on fire, allowing the fire to burn through the roof. We don't really know what happened to the temple. Joseph Smith would not see it uh, completed. He would not live that long. And after his death, the saints used it to perform sacred ordinances as best they could. It should be noted that by the time Brigham Young closes up shop with the temple, 5,200 saints would have received their endowment. And we'll come back to that. We're going to talk about who gets their endowments and how that happens. But let's talk about why Joseph had this idea to restore the fullness of the priesthood to begin with. It's said that in 1823, when Moroni, the angel Moroni, visits Joseph Smith in this heavenly vision, that Moroni promises Joseph Smith that Elijah would come. And here's what Bruce R. McConkie, who is a Mormon theologian, has to say in Doctrines of Salvation, quote, Elijah would come. Elijah did come to the Kirtland Temple in 1836. At this time, he restored the keys that the priesthood holders had to have before they could use the power, full power of the Melchizedek priesthood. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had received the Melchizedek priesthood in 1829, but until the coming of Elijah, they could not make its full blessings available unto mankind. In the following statement, 
President Joseph Fielding Smith explained that the authority that Elijah restored to the earth, quote, Elijah came to restore to the earth by conferring on mortal prophets, duly commissioned of the Lord, the fullness of the power of the priesthood. This priesthood holds the keys of binding and sealing on earth and in heaven of all the ordinances and principles pertaining to the salvation of man, that they must thus become valid in the celestial kingdom of God. End quote. It is by the virtue of this authority that the ordinances are performed in the temples for both the living and the dead. It is a power which unites for eternity husbands and wives when they enter into marriage according to the eternal plan. It is the authority by which parents obtain the claim of parenthood concerning their children through all eternity, and not only for time, which makes the eternal family in the kingdom of God, end quote. Um, so Bruce R. McConkie says that he has to restore, Joseph Smith has to restore this holy priesthood, the fullness of the priesthood, because that is what binds families together. It seals them together. Let's go to LDS.org, the, the LDS Church's official site, to see how they lay out the history of the restoration of the priesthood. This is what they say, quote, In the last dispensation, all the authority, ordinances, and knowledge of earlier dispensations have been restored. It is in the order of heavenly things that God should always send a new dispensation into the world when men have apostatized from the truth and lost the priesthood. On September 6, 1842, the prophet Joseph Smith wrote the following to the saints, later recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 128.18, It is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in, that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glory should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. And not only this, but those things which have never been revealed revealed from the foundation of the world, but have been kept hid from the wise and prudent, shall be revealed unto babes and sucklings in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. The dispensation of the fullness of times will bring to light the things that have been revealed in all former dispensations. Also other things that have not been revealed. He shall send Elijah the prophet, etc., and restore the, all things in Christ. Now the purpose in himself is winding up scene of the last dispensation, is that all things pertaining to that dispensation should be conducted precisely in accordance with the preceding dispensations. And again, God purposed himself that there should not be an eternal fullness until every dispensation should be fulfilled and gathered together in one, and that all things whatsoever they should be gathered together in one in those dispensations unto the same fullness and eternal glory should be in Christ Jesus. All the ordinances and duties that ever have been required by the priesthood under the directions and commandments of the Almighty in any of the dispensations shall all be had in the last dispensation. Therefore, all things that had the authority of the priesthood at any former period shall be again bringing to pass the restoration spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets, end quote. Now that was a lot, but let that sink in for just a minute what this is talking about. This is why people get so excited about Mormonism. This is why I talk about Mormonism being such a heady doctrine. Think about it. Think of God restoring to the earth the authority or the power to reveal everything to man, every every sort of knowledge that we could ever want, past knowledge, present knowledge, ancient knowledge, future knowledge, the priesthood has the ability to do that. It also has the ability to restore things, wonderful, magical, mysterious things that um, used to exist in the Bible that we don't see anymore. So 
is there a reason why we don't see, you know, burning bushes and um, manna falling from heaven? Perhaps they haven't, they've been lost to the earth and they need to be restored. This is what the saints really thought that they were restoring. And this is why Mormonism gets so exciting to so many people because it's sort of, there's a lot of power in this idea and this belief that, that we are ordaining men with this actual ability. Back to LDS.org, Joseph Smith holds the keys of the dispensation of the fullness of times. Quote, I hold the keys of the last kingdom in which this dispensation of the fullness of all things spoken of by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began under the sealing power of the Melchizedek priesthood. Every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven before this world was. I suppose that I was ordained to this very office in the grand council. It is a testimony that I want that I am God's servant and this people, his people. The ancient prophets declared that in this last days, the gods of heaven should set up a kingdom which should never be destroyed nor left to other people. I calculate to be one of the instruments of setting up the kingdom of Daniel by the word of the Lord, and I intend to lay a foundation that will revolutionize the whole world. I have the whole plan of the kingdom before me, and no other person has, end quote. I want you to picture Joseph Smith standing on a pulpit, standing on a stump, standing on a stage, delivering this speech, right? This would be very powerful. What would that be like to have a man who's already charismatic and handsome and powerful and has a lot of influence to deliver such a speech like that, especially if you believed him? I imagine it was a very powerful thing. Lucy Mack Smith, um, according to LDS.org, was also present when Joseph Smith preached in Kirtland, Ohio, and she recalled the words of her son, quote, I myself hold the keys of the last dispensation, and I forever will hold them in time and in eternity. So set your hearts at rest for all is well, end quote. Joseph Smith really believed that he was the one ushering in these changes and bringing and restoring these keys through heavenly angels to human beings. In an editorial in the Times and Seasons in 1842, Joseph Smith would write, quote, The heavenly priesthood will unite with the earthly to bring about that great purpose. And whilst we are thus united in the one common cause to roll forth the kingdom of God, the heavenly priesthood are not idle spectators. The spirit of God will be showered down from above and it will dwell in our midst. The blessings of the Most High will rest upon our, tab- our tabernacles and our names will be handed down to future ages. Our children will rise up and call us blessed, and generations yet unborn will dwell with a peculiar delight upon the scenes which we have passed through, the privations that we have endured, the untiring zeal that we have manifested, the all but insurmountable difficulties that we have overcome in laying the foundations of a work that brought about the glory and the blessings which they will realize, a work that God and angels have contemplated with delight for generations past." that fired the souls of the ancient patriarchs and prophets, a work that is destined to bring about the destruction of the power of darkness, the renovation of the earth, the glory of God, and the salvation of the human family, end quote. This is what Joseph Smith is promising with the priesthood, okay? This is not a small promise. You know, I, I grew up in the LDS church. We went to church. We talked about the priesthood. It just seems so boring to me. It never seemed this exciting. This is, this is the excitement of the keys of the priesthood. Um, so in this episode, there's a definitive article on this subject, 
which I will link to, which I encourage you all to check out. It's like 36 pages long or something. It's a dialogue article. It's worth reading the entire thing because I'm going to be leaving out a lot of gems, but I'm going to be reading heavily from it. It's called The Fullness of the Priesthood, The Second Anointing in Latter-day Saint Theology and Practice by David Berger, and it's Dialogue Volume 16, and I've linked to it. Here's what he has to say about it. Quote, The significance of what followed can best be understood in the context of the changing Latter-day Saint concept of salvation. Prior to mid-1831, Mormon theology was clearly not predestinarian. The Book of Mormon, for example, contains no mention of terms such as calling an election, or elect, or destined, or predestined, or predestinate in respect to mankind's afterlife, judgment, or salvation. The Doctrine and Covenant's sole use of the phrase calling an election came in June of 1831 in a revelation that similarly avoided any implications. At some point between June and November 1831, however, LDS salvation theology changed. A precipitating event seemed to be the June 3, 1831 conferral of the high priesthood of church elders. According to testimony in 1887 by Book of Mormon witness David Whitmer, the introduction of high priests, an event he considered to be an unfortunate aberration from scriptural sources, quote, all originated in the mind of Sidney Rigdon. Rigdon finally persuaded Brother Joseph Smith to believe that the high priest, which had such great power in ancient times, should be in the Church of Christ today. He had Brother Joseph inquire of the Lord about it, and they received an answer according to their erring desires. Official church histories contain no record of disagreement or controversy, and the significance of the event may have been perceived differently as time passed. The new office of high priest quickly came to be regarded as different from and greater than those of priest and elder because a high priest could, quote, seal, that is, perform early ordinances that were ratified in heaven. Joseph Smith spelled out this crucial function on October 25, 1831, when he is reported to have said at a conference in Far West, quote, the order of the high priesthood is that they have power given them to seal up the saints unto eternal life, and it was the privilege of every elder present to be ordained to the high priesthood, end quote. So think about that. Joseph Smith is sort of experimenting with the priesthood. We have these offices of the priesthood, elder, Aaronic priesthood, Melchizedek, but what does it mean? How do we govern ourselves? How do we make ourselves elite so we can be leaders among other people who have the priesthood? If, if the gospel is for all and the priesthood is for all, how do we do that and still maintain this order and this sort of hierarchy? So Joseph decides to institute the, you know, the high priest, and that gives men the power to seal. And once we have the power of sealing, this sort of takes us from Book of Mormon theology into sort of where we see the doctrine and covenant shifting. Joseph would often speak vaguely and grandly about the priesthood. The priesthood was the key. It was the answer. It was the treasure at the end of the map. It was the secret that unlocked the mysteries of heaven. One of the grand functions of the priesthood had to do with the sealing power, which developed early in Joseph Smith's theology. The word sealing is not something Joseph Smith made up. It comes from the Bible, for example, in John 6, 27, when Christ is sealed to God the Father. Sealing was sort of Mormonism's way of officially validating what happened on earth. It's like putting a stamp of approval, uh, making something official, locking it in for the rest of eternity. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said, quote, All things that are not sealed by this power have an end when men are dead. Unless a baptism has this enduring seal, it will not admit a person to the celestial kingdom. 
all things gain enduring force and validity because of the sealing power, end quote. So even in Mormon doctrine, Bruce R. McConkie is writing about the fact that the sealing power is required to be saved to the highest level of a celestial kingdom. This power was allegedly restored to Joseph Smith April 3rd, 1836, in the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy in Malachi 4, 5. Quote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This idea of sealing things in heaven that are done on earth is a cornerstone of Mormonism's sacred ordinances. In Mormonism's great plan of happiness, there's this idea of internal, eternal increase. That you start here, you do some stuff here. You actually don't start here. You started before you got here to earth, but now you're here. Uh, you try to live as best you can. You get a family, um, and then you die, and you keep doing these things, but you increase your family, and you increase your knowledge, and you increase your priesthood, and you increase your kingdoms, and your further light and knowledge increases. In Joseph Smith's famous King Follett discourse, he said, quote, Here then is eternal life to know the only wise and true God, and you've got to learn how to be gods yourself and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, namely by going from one small degree to another and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory, as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power, end quote. So there's this idea of we eventually will become gods because God knows everything. And so if you're going to go the rest of eternity to learn these fantastic things about the world, you're going to eventually end up knowing as much as God does. Now, to most Christians, this, is seem, this seems heretical, right? The idea that human beings can be an, or know as much as God. But to Joseph and to many Mormons, this just made logical sense. It was sort of the end of things. Like, if you're going to go to heaven and you're going to spend all that time, what are you going to be doing with that time? Well, you're going to be learning and you're going to be growing and you're going to become like God eventually. God will still be your God, the ruler over you, but you'll get your chance to do what God did and create your own world. Because, as we'll see in later Frontier Doctrine that Brigham Young talks about with Adam God, our world is just our God's way of experimenting, and he had a God, and it goes on and on and on forever. Now, in the preface of the Doctrine and Covenants, um, the Lord says in writing, quote, Wherefore I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith Jr. and spake unto him from heaven, that mine everlasting covenant might be established. So, We have this idea of restoring the fullness of the priesthood. Now, with the fullness of the priesthood comes ordinances and covenants. And this is where Joseph really sort of lets his masonry kind of intermingle. The idea of like, you can't just get the priesthood and that's it. You have to go through a ceremony and there has to be rituals and there has to be promises made and there has to be hand signs and things like that. Here's what Bruce R. McConkie, Mormon theologian, theologian wrote, quote, 
What then is the law of justification? It is simply this. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations in which men must abide to be saved and exalted must be entered into and performed in righteousness so that the Holy Spirit can justify the candidate for salvation in what has been done. An act that is justified by the Spirit is one that is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, or in other words, ratified and approved by the Holy Ghost. This law of justification is a provision the Lord has placed in the gospel to assure that there is no unrighteous performance that will be binding on earth and in heaven, and that no person will add to his position or glory in their hereafter by gaining an unearned blessing. As with all doctrines of salvation, justification is available because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but it will become operative in the life of an individual only on conditions of personal righteousness, end quote. And that's in Mormon doctrines, um, and then it's quoted in Doctrines of Salvation. But here's the thing that's interesting about this. This is such an American idea, right? This is such an American frontier idea, which you sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps doctrine, which is you work hard for what you get. You don't get, you know, blessings handed to you. It's sort of the the political discussion that we have um, in American politics right now, right? Do we give people welfare? Do we just let them live off the state. No, people have to work hard for what they have. This is sort of Mormonism's core theology. You don't get, I mean, of course, everyone's saved. You all go to heaven because you have to go somewhere when you die. But what about those who worked a little bit harder? Maybe they'll get a little bit better of heaven. That's sort of the logic in Mormonism. Now, I could go on and list several sources that state that godhood is the goal for Mormonism, that we make covenants for eternal increase to become gods. There's this this um, emerging idea in LDS circles and in uh, official, <laughs> official LDS circles where we're sort of denying the idea that Mormons don't strive for godhood. In fact, I think they published an essay about this and they talk about how Mormons don't want their own planet and things like that. And it's kind of silly because the point of ceilings, covenants, ordinances, and eternal increase is for eternal increase. I mean, that is why we're doing it. That has been the theology all along. And it's interesting now to watch the shift as we come to more mainstream things. Um, the idea, it's probably why I was taught the priesthood was so boring, right? Um, I, w- I focus more on this idea of family and how to have a happy home and, and things like that because these these deeper doctrines of why the priesthood is going to unlock these, these eternal realms for you is something that the church had to move away with because it's so tied to the new and everlasting covenant, which of course in its inception had to do with what? Plural marriage. Now that Mormonism has moved from plural marriage, we have to move away from some of these doctrines too, including the fullness of the priesthood. To rob this doctrine, though, of people on the frontier and say that that was never the understanding is just, it's absurd. And um, I've, I've seen some modern LDS historians try to do this, but it's absurd because to rob them of this doctrine would be to rob them of their main motivations for entering the difficult task of plural marriage. It sort of makes their sacrifices erased. And and we can't do that. There is a very steady stream of evidence, like overwhelming steady stream of evidence to suggest that Mormonism's main goal of the eternal plan of happiness is to become like God and to have our own world someday. I mean, that's just Mormonism. 
like the LDS church can move away from that, but that's, that is what Joseph Smith intended. It's certainly what Brigham Young understood and many, many prophets after him. BYU professor Charles Harrell writes, quote, The concept of eternal marriage isn't found anywhere in the Book of Mormon or other Latter-day Saint scripture prior to 1843. It was in Nauvoo in the summer of 1843 that Joseph Smith formally introduced the new and everlasting covenant of marriage in D&C 132, which initially entailed plural marriage. DNC 132 explicitly states, quote, For all who will have a blessing at my hand shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof, as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. In the same section of the Doctrine and Covenants, quote, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you abide my law, you cannot attain to this glory, end quote. Now, of course, the modern LDS church, as we moved away from uh, polygamy and plural marriage, we have come to mean DNC 132 as just marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, which is why we focus so much on, you know, fighting gay marriage, because this is really all we have to talk about now. We've stripped ourselves from all of these deep doctrines in Mormonism, and it's really just about, you know, if marriage is the goal, if that's how you attain the glory, not only does it leave single people out and divorce people out and people of color out and all kinds of things, but if that's the goal, but we can't have plural marriage, what's left? Well, I guess we have to fight gay marriage then. Let's see how Brigham Young would have understood it. Um, he said in August 19th, 1866 in the Journal of Discourses, and this is in a sermon entitled The Beneficial Effects of Plural Marriage, which I have linked to. He says, quote, Now we as Christians desire to be saved in the kingdom of God. We desire to attain the possession of all the blessings there are for the most faithful men or people that have ever lived upon the face of the earth. Even him who is said to be the father of the faithful, Abraham of old, we wish to obtain all that Father Abraham obtained. I wish here to say that the elders of Israel and to all the members of the church and kingdom, that in the hearts of many of them, to wish that the doctrine of polygamy was not taught and practiced by us. It may be hard for many, and especially for the ladies. Yet it is no harder for them than it is for the gentlemen. It is the word of the Lord, and I wish to say unto you and to all the world that if you desire with all your hearts to obtain the blessings which Abraham obtained, you will be polygamous, at least in your faith, or you will come short of enjoying the salvation and the glory which Abraham has obtained. This is as true as, the, as God lives. You who wish that there is no such thing in existence, if you have in your hearts to say, quote, we will pass along a church without obeying or submitting it to it in our faith or believing this order, because for aught that we know, this community may be broken up yet, and we may have lucrative offices offered to us. We will not therefore be polygamous, lest we should fall in a obtaining, fail in obtaining some earthly honor, character, and office, etc., the man that has that in his heart and will continue to persist in pursuing that policy will come short of dwelling in the presence of the Father and Son in celestial glory. The only men who become gods, even the sons of gods, are those who enter into polygamy. Others attain unto a glory and may even be permitted to come into the presence of the Father and the Son, but they cannot reign as kings in glory because they had had their blessings offered up unto them and they refused to accept them." End quote. Now, I picture Brigham Young, you know, delivering that with sort of this benevolent force, right, that, that I think he would have given his sermons. And this idea of, sure, 
Heaven is available for all, but the best heaven is only for polygamists. And he goes on to say in this in this uh, sermon that uh, everyone will be saved in lesser degrees, even, quote, the Africans. And he goes on to explain why the curse of blackness is upon their skin, and it's because their fathers, and he says this, their fathers rejected the true order of the fullness of the priesthood, which is interesting. And this is why I say the celestial kingdom is not for people of color, um, especially black people, because plural marriage was never designed for them. Now let's say what or- let's see what Orson Pratt had to say on the subject quote. Now after having said so much in relation to the reason why we practice polygamy, I want to say a few words in regards to the revelation on polygamy. God has told us Latter-day Saints that we should be condemned if we do not enter into that principle. And yet I have heard now and then, I'm very glad to say that only such instances have come under my notice. A brother or sister say I'm a Latter-day Saint, but I do not believe in polygamy. Oh, what an absurd expression. What an absurd idea. A person might as well say, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I do not believe in him. One is just as consistent as the other. Or a person might as well say, I believe in Mormonism and in the revelations given through Joseph Smith, but I am not a polygamist and I do not believe in polygamy. What an absurdity. If one portion of the doctrines of the church is true, the whole of them are true. If the doctrine of polygamy as revealed to the Latter-day Saints is not true, I would not give a fig for all your other revelations that came through Joseph Smith, the prophet. I would renounce the whole of them because it is utterly impossible, according to the revelations that are contained in these books, to believe a part of them to be divine from God and part of them to be from the devil. That is foolishness in the extreme. It's an absurdity that exists because of the ignorance of some people. I have been astonished at it. I did hope that there was more intelligence among the Latter-day Saints and a greater understanding of principles than to suppose that anyone can be a member of this church in good standing and yet reject polygamy. The Lord has said that those who reject this principle reject their salvation. They shall be damned, saith the Lord. Those to whom I reveal this law and they do not receive it shall be damned. End quote. Now I picture him saying it and his daughters like sitting there saying, okay, dad, settle down, rolling their eyes. Let me give you one more like that. Uh, let's do Joseph F. Smith. He said, quote, it is a glorious privilege to be permitted to go into a temple of God, to be united as man and wife in the bonds of the holy wedlock for time and all eternity by the authority of the holy priesthood, which is the power of God, for they who are thus joined together no man can put asunder. For God hath joined them. It is an additional privilege for that same man and wife to re-enter the temple of God to receive another wife in the manner if they are worthy. But if he remain faithful, only the one wife, observing the conditions of so much of the law as pertains to the eternity of marriage covenant, he will receive his reward. But the benefits, blessings, and power appertaining to the second or more faithful and fuller observance of the law, he will never receive, for he cannot. As before stated, no man can obtain the benefits of one law by the observance of another, however faithful he may be, in which he does. Nor can he secure to himself the fullness of any blessing without he fulfills the law upon which it is predicated, but he will receive the benefit of the law he obeys. This is just and righteous. If this is not correct doctrine, then I am an heir. And if I am an heir, I want to be corrected. I understand the law of celestial marriage to mean that every man in this church who has the ability to obey and practice in righteousness and will not shall be damned. I say I understand it to mean this and nothing less. And I testify this in the name of Jesus Christ, 
that it does mean that, end quote. So clearly many people, and there, there are many quotes like this, many of them understood polygamy to be the order for the highest degree of salvation. And I would argue that some LDS and certainly Mormon fundamentalists believe this to be so. This is why the stakes are so high. This is why there are so many extant Mormon groups, because plural marriage is required. I mean, when I hear these, these, you know, these ideas that, oh, you know, it's not required anymore in this life. Why do we think so many people uh, are Mormon polygamists today? I mean, they're not doing it because they think it's fun. They're doing it because they know that it's required for salvation. Now, of course, by the 1970s, the LDS Church had transitioned from new and everlasting covenant to mean monogamous marriage. I've considered doing a podcast on the whole transition, and I might, but uh, there was just one phrase that stuck out to me in a church manual called Achieving Celestial Marriage, and this was printed in 1976. And they say, quote, that marriage is your laboratory for godhood. So even as almost into 1980, we're teaching that uh, marriage is your beginning of godhood. Okay, so that was a lot about the fullness of the priesthood, but we had to do that because we have to talk about what fullness means to understand why there would even be a need for a second anointing. Now, very little is known about the ordinances, um, you know, the first anointing and especially the second anointing because the second anointing is so secretive or sacred in nature. But there was a time when it was far more common than it is today. And that's where where we have a lot of these sources. Now, as we're talking about this, keep in mind the idea of eternal increase that I spoke of, this idea that we expand and grow and gain forever and ever and ever. Joseph Smith talks about this in 1843, and he, he records it in the history of the church. He's discussing the three orders of the priesthood, and he says, quote, How shall God come to the rescue of this generation? He will send Elijah the prophet. The law revealed to Moses in Horeb never was revealed to the children of Israel as a nation. Elijah shall reveal the covenants to seal the hearts of the father to the children and the children to the fathers. The anointing and sealing is to be called, elected, and made sure. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. The Melchizedek priesthood holds the right from the eternal God and not by the descent from father and mother. And that priesthood is as eternal as God himself, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, end quote. This phrase that Joseph Smith brings up, to have your calling and election be made sure, comes to be interpreted by Mormons as an ordinance that seals you to Godhead in earth, earthly life. You don't get a lesser degree like Brigham Young was talking about. You get a higher degree and it will be sealed and made sure. It's like signing the lease of your eternal mansion. It's like making it final. You don't have to wait around to know if you're going to heaven or hell or a lower degree. You're, you're there. You're top degree. You're going to become like God. Mormon doctrine says, quote, the elect of God compromise a very select group, an inner circle of faithful members of the church. They are the portion of church members who are striving with all their hearts to keep the fullness of the gospel life in this life so that they can become inheritors of the fullness of gospel rewards in the life to come, end quote. And that's on page 217 of Mormon doctrine. The fullness of the gospel refers to the laws and commandments of God. The Lord said that the scriptures were given to the salvation of mine own elect, for they will hear my voice and shall see me. So the elect are the people that get to hang out with God. Now, 
I really like to turn to what fundamentalist thinkers uh, are talking about with this because they really sort of take Mormon doctrine. They don't strip it down they, and, they, and they follow it. And so fundamentalist writer and theologian Ogden Kraut wrote an entire booklet on the second anointing. And he very clearly lays out the doctrine of the anointing. And I'm going to quote from his book here. And then I'm going to link to it. Um, So this is what he says about the first anointing or the first endowment quote. One of the first directives from Paul, from prophet Joseph Smith to the saints was, you need an endowment, brethren, in order that you may be prepared to overcome, prepared and able to overcome all things. This endowment was complicated in its nature, but it was to help the spiritually minded to comprehend the powers and glories of God. The prophet added, the endowment you are so anxious about, you cannot comprehend now, nor could Gabriel explain it to the understanding of your dark minds, but strive to be prepared in your hearts. Brigham Young, speaking in the Nauvoo Temple, said that there were two specific reasons for the signs and tokens used in these ordinances. Said he, there are four panel signs and four panel tokens, and should I want to address the throne to inquire after ancient things which transpired on planets before this planet came into existence— I should use my new name, which is ancient and refers to ancient things. If I wish to inquire for present things, I should use my own name, which refers to present things. And should I wish to inquire for the future, I should use the third name, which refers to the third token, the Melchizedek, or is the third token that is given and refers to the sun. The second token of Melchizedek priesthood is to be given only in one place and nowhere else. These signs and tokens that pertain to the priesthood should never be given anywhere, only in such places as belong to the priesthood, and that too by none but such as belong to the order of the priesthood. But there are not six persons that have gone through these ordinances that can offer them correctly. And some have the presumption to approach this veil, which is the most sacred ordinance that is performed in this house, and have marked the garments wrong. And levity has been used here, which is not pleasing to the sight of the Lord. And this was uh, in the book B Minutes of the 70s Record in 1845. Now, um, this is me again, not quoting from Ogden Kraut. It's interesting because these signs and tokens and things like this, this is something very familiar to Mormons who have been through the temple because these are what happens in the temple. But it's this idea of being initiated into the holy priesthood. Now back to Ogden Kraut, quote, certain special spiritual blessings given worthy and faithful saints in the temples are called endowments because in and through them, the recipients are endowed with power from on high. They receive an education relative to the Lord's purposes and plans in the creation of peopling of the earth and are taught the things that must be done by man in order to gain exaltation in the world to come. They place themselves in a position to receive the sanctifying and cleansing power of the Holy Ghost, thus becoming clean and spotless before the Lord. So sacred and holy are the administrations performed that in every age when they have been revealed, the Lord has withheld them from the knowledge of the world and disclosed them only to the faithful saints in the houses and places dedicated and selected for that purpose." Alvin R. Dreyer describes the endowment and the promises connected therein. Quote, I call your attention now to the washing and anointing that you received in the temple when you went in the washing and anointing room, where you were washed and anointed with water and oil, you were given a new name, and you were promised that someday you would be called upon to be a king and a priest or a queen and a priestess. Thus, the first anointing is merely the promise to receive a second anointing. One is a promise and the other is a fulfillment the second anointing, or the second endowment. 
The purpose and blessing of the second anointing was explained by Joseph Musser. Now, remember, Joseph Musser is the fundamentalist royalty. He's one of the guys that starts Mormon fundamentalism. Here's what Musser says, quote, The second anointing is preparatory to receive the second comforter, which completes the ordination. Sometimes the second comforter is given while in the temple. Often it does not come until years after, even just at death. But they who have had their second anointings can see the face of the Lord and live, even though being in the flesh as one sees and talks to another. These blessings were first promised to the saints by the prophet Joseph Smith, who said, quote, I feel disposed to speak a few words more to you, my brethren, concerning the endowment. All who are prepared, all are sufficiently pure to abide the presence of the Savior, will see him in the solemn assembly, end quote. This is recorded by Ogden Kraut, but it's interesting because he points out that the second anointment is a fulfillment. So look at the first anointment. That is what most Latter-day Saints go when they get their their endowment. They get their first anointment, which is a promise. I'm not going to say what those promises are. You can figure it out by listening to this. But these promises are given in the temple to people that go through their first anointing. The second anointing is supposed to be a fulfillment of those promises. So look at it that way, that the second anointing, you know, fulfills what the first anointing promises. Now, in June of 1839, Willard Richards records a sermon that Joseph Smith gave that explains how Joseph Smith is developing this idea of the calling and election being made sure. That if a, you know, if a Latter-day Saint sort of committed their life to the church, that they would be sealed up, sealed up to exaltation. And this is directly taken from Peter, Second Peter uh, chapter 1. Quote, Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. End quote. Now, according to historian John Berger, who wrote this uh, dialogue article I was talking about, quote, that on June um, 1830, that in the June 1839 sermon, it has additional importance. For in it, Joseph not only linked making one's calling and election sure to sealing theology, but also added the notion of a comforter, which we heard Joseph Musser talking about, which he defined as a personal manifestation of Jesus Christ. These ideas were in turn associated with the concept of personal revelation. He urged the twelve apostles and all Mormons to follow his own footsteps and become perfect in Jesus Christ. There was no reference to the temple in his sermons. Indeed, there were no functioning temples at the time. End quote. Now, something that's interesting is that um, Wilford Woodruff would record in his journal in the 1840s, uh, in these discussions with Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, that it was sort of understood that Joseph Smith saw himself as re- as restoring the fullness of the priesthood, but not quite completing it. And even when he was alive, he didn't believe he had quite completed the fullness of the priesthood. He was still developing it. That, you know, Brigham Young thought perhaps that he would carry that on after Joseph died. I'm going to quote a lot from John Berger in his dialogue article because it's too good. Here's what he says, quote, The previous 12 years of pronouncements, sealings, and anointings unto eternal life guaranteed a status that, according to Joseph's 1843 teachings, was subservient to that of the gods. From the perspective of these teachings, even the Nauvoo Endowment administered to members of the Holy Order simply provided that men who received it would live in the celestial kingdom as angels and servants. Until 1843, women had been excluded from these ordinances, possibly because of Joseph Smith's personal reluctance, Emma Smith's rejection of polygamy, John C. Bennett's lurid expose, and or the apostasy of, 
of subsequent uh, reconciliation of Orson and Sarah Pratt over polygamy. However, Doctrine and Covenants 132 and 131 and 132 indicate that this exclusion deprived the men who had received the previous ordinances of the highest kingdom of glory, which is godhood. The higher ordinance was necessary to confirm the revealed promises of, quote, kingly powers, which meant godhood, received in the endowment's initiatory ordinances. Godhood was therefore the meaning of this higher ordinance or second anointing for the previously revealed promises in the Doctrine and Covenants 132, which implicitly refer not to those who have been sealed in celestial marriage, but those who have been sealed and ordained kings and priests, queens and priestesses to God. Such individuals would necessarily have received the second anointing. Then shall they be gods because they have all power and angels are subject unto them. This special priesthood ordinance was first administered on September 28, 1843 to Joseph and Emma Smith. The history of the church gives a discreet account of this event. Quote, at half past 11 a.m., a council convened over the store, consisting of myself, my brother Hiram, Uncle John Smith, Newell K. Whitney, George Miller, Willard Richards, John Taylor, Amasa Lyman, John M. Bernheisel, and Lucian Woodworth. And at seven in the evening, we met in the front upper room of the mansion with William Law and William Marks. By the common consent and unanimous voice of the council, I was chosen president of the special council. The president led in prayer that his days might be prolonged until his mission on the earth is accomplished, have dominion over his enemies, all the households be blessed, and the church and the world, end quote. Joseph Smith's journal, which is the original source, gives a fuller account, quote, Barack L.A., a code name for Joseph Smith, was by common consent and unanimous voice chosen president of the quorum and anointed and ordained to the highest and holiest order, the priesthood and companion, end quote. Now, when he says and companion, his companion was his wife, Emma Smith, to whom he had been sealed for time and eternity four months earlier on May 28th. Wilford Woodruff's record of this event found in the 1858 historian's private journal was equally explicit, quote, Then by common consent, Joseph Smith, the prophet, received his second anointing of the highest and holiest order, end quote. In the next several years, the second anointing was performed to at least 20 men and 17 women. And the dialogue article has a nice long list of folks who received them. And I'm going to read that in just a second. But we want to talk about this for a second. Um, this idea that all of a sudden, Joseph Smith is now promising people that they can be gods. That is that is the order of the second anointing. This is the purpose of it. And we're going to talk about, I'm going to read you the list now of the people who are promised. Okay, so here's a list of people that become gods in these first anointings. We have Reynolds Cahoon, Joseph Fielding, Alpheus Cutler, we have Heber C. Kimball, Cornelius Lott in 44, William Marks, Isaac Morley, and William Phelps in 44, Willard Richards in 44, George A. Smith, Hiram Smith, John Smith, Joseph Smith Jr., John Taylor, Newell K. Whitney, Wilford Woodruff, Brigham Young. These men become gods, and some of them... Um, are able to get their wives through the first anointing by doing this. Uh, this this is how it happens. Now, 
I want to make an important distinction um, when we look at the succession of how Brigham Young and the Brighamites get the authority from Joseph Smith after Joseph Smith dies. Joseph Smith was killed in June of 1844, and Brigham Young eventually wrestles control of the church away from any challengers, um, anyone that wants to be a successor. And it's important to consider that Brigham Young is the only candidate out of all the successors to have received his second anointing. The others, Sidney Rigdon, William Smith, James, Jesse String, Lyman White, and later Joseph Smith III, none of them had their second anointing. Now, of course, Sidney Rigdon actually tries to come up with an anointing ordinance and washes and anoints some of his followers, and this leads to his eventual excommunication from, from the main church. Brigham Young, of course, has And this cause helps him in having his uh, calling and election made sure, and then, of course, you know, becoming the next leader of the the movement. This is important because by January of 1846, Young is actually administering the second anointing in the nearly completed Nauvoo Temple. He would actually re-administer a lot of the ordinances um, for people that had received them for Joseph Smith. So if you went through an ordinance with Joseph Smith, Brigham Young would redo it for you. And it sort of cements and re-establishes um, his authority. It's said that he performed about 600 second anointings, some to polygamous unions, before the temple was closed in February of 1846. Now, I want you to think of the impact this has. The idea that once you are declared a god in the eternities, um, that this has been sealed to you, right? That you are now going, you're on your way to godhood. You're becoming a god. It's sure, nothing is going to take it away. It's unconditional. What does this mean? And I want you to put this in the context of everything else we know about Brigham Young. His involvement with U.S. governments, his possible involvement in really dark things like possibly Mountain Meadows Massacre and lynchings and assassinations and, and dealings with Gentiles and dealings with troops and governments and, and people in the church. If you're a god, these things aren't immoral. They become divine, part of your divine purpose. And I mentioned January 1846 because on January 8th of that year, Heber Kimball records about a sacred altar being built in the Nauvoo Temple, and the first anointing to the fullness of the priesthood is given on that date. And this means that Young would have felt that he completed what Joseph Smith could not by restoring the fullness of the priesthood. Back to John Berger. He says, quote, The first were Heber C. Kimball and his wife, uh, Valate Murray. Brigham Young, who performed the ordinance, and eight other observers gathered in Brigham Brigham's room number one, donned special temple clothing, sang a hymn, and proceeded with the ordinance, which involved anointing and the pronouncement of a blessing by Brigham Young. Among other things, he promised Heber C. Kimball the blessing of the Holy Resurrection, even to the eternal Godhead. Heber's wife was then anointed a queen and priestess unto her husband and received the same blessing as he did. Within the next few days, other leading brethren and their wives also received their second anointing. When the temple was closed on uh, February of 1846, over 2,000 couples had been sealed for time and eternity, and just under 600 persons had received the fullness of the priesthood through their second anointing. In addition to Brigham Young, at least 19 other men were delegated authority to perform second anointings. On a typical day, 6 to 12 couples received the ordinance. A few women were sealed to their current husband for time, but as a queen to the deceased man, usually Joseph Smith, for eternity. 
For the first time, several polygamous second anointing sealings were also performed. In actual practice, a second anointing as performed for couples by an officiator was the first of two parts comprising the fullness of the priesthood ceremony. The second part was private without witnesses and involved only the husband and wife. It's significant related to the resurrection of the dead, as Heber C. Kimball notes. In this part of the ordinance, the wife symbolically prepared her husband for his death and resurrection, a ceremony that gave the wife a claim on her husband for herself in the resurrection. So according to uh, John Berger, in this ceremony, the wife is actually preparing her husband's body for the resurrection. She's preparing um, him to come forth, sort of like an, an uh, um, you know, a mummification in reverse. Back to Berger, quote, After migration to the Salt Lake Valley, the LDS Church did not conduct further second anointings until late 1866. Part of the issue was that there was no temple. Heber C. Kimball helped build and dedicate the first endowment house in 1855. But in the endowment house, no second anointings were performed that we know of. Now, end quote. Now, we know that we believe that none of these were performed because we have men like Wilford Woodruff complaining in meetings that apostles aren't being anointed, and the reason given was that there was no temple. Berger says, quote, Whether President Young initially intended to await the completion of a new temple before reinstating second anointings is not clear. However, by early January 1867, 10 years before the St. George Temple was dedicated, he decided to resume his highest ordinance of Mormonism. On December 26, 1866, President Young met in council with the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve in a session which touched on the subject of endowments and second anointings. In this meeting, he clarified several procedural issues before reinstituting the ordinances of the second anointing. Wilford Woodruff's diary for that procedure procedural meeting on December 26 reports that President Young described the order of the second anointings. The initiates would be dressed in temple clothes while the administrator would wear street clothes or temple clothing. A decade later, he repeated these instructions to Wilfred Woodruff, quote, Furthermore, there should be but one man anointed at any one meeting. If more than one man is anointed in a day, they should come together and open by prayer as though there had not been any meeting before and thus continue to the end. Wilfred Woodruff's journal continues, quote, President Young said when a woman was anointed, a queen to a good man, and he died, and the woman was sealed to another man for time, it was not necessary for her to be anointed a queen again. But if she was anointed a queen to a man who is not worthy of a wife, she is sealed to another man. She should be anointed a queen unto him. When a good man dies and his wives have not been anointed queens unto him, they may be anointed queens to him after death without any proxy. End quote. This last comment suggests that the second anointing was, at least during Brigham Young's administration, the only vicarious ordinance wherein a living proxy was not always required. The next day, the First Presidency and most of the Twelve consecrated olive oil for use in administering the second anointing. And on December 31st, 1866, Daniel H. Wells and his four wives received their second anointing from Brigham Young, who had perfumed the consecrated oil for this ordinance. As Wilford Woodruff recorded, quote, The brethren rejoiced at this commencement again of the administration of these ordinances, which had not been administered since they were in the Temple of Nauvoo. This event marked the beginning of a new period of conferring the fullness of the priesthood. George Q. Cannon and his three wives received their second anointing on the next day, on January 1, 1867. Joseph A. Young received his on January 2nd. Brigham Young Jr. on January 3rd. Joseph Smith at Joseph F. Smith and two wives on January 4th. 
and many others followed January through June of 1867, end quote. Now, we talked about others having the authority to perform these second anointings. So you have to think about what that means, right? The higher order of the priesthood, this saving ordinance. And this is going to kind of explain to you why fundamentalists have taken such liberties with authority. Wilford Woodruff recorded that Brigham Young gave him authority to perform the second anointings in this in the St. George Temple, including the ability to perform sealings for plural marriages. And this was before Wilford Woodruff was president of the church. This was like, like 15 years before that. They also performed uh, second anointings for the dead, which is interesting. This would have been in 1877, you know, um, when right before Brigham Young's death. This is important to understand because the lines of authority are really messy and who can perform such sacred ordinances are really messy. And this really does make a case for fundamentalism. In, 18, in the 1880s, church president John Taylor um, starts issuing second anointings for the School of the Prophet, which remember, uh, we see the School of Prophets show up again in a resurgence of Mormon fundamentalism in the 1970s, almost 100 years later after John Taylor is reinstituting the School of the Prophets. At this time, a requirement of those who entered into the 1883 School of the Prophets Besides endowment and temple marriage, um, they had to. One of the requirements to be in the school of the prophets was being entered into celestial or plural marriage. And you know, John Taylor saw himself as the church was operating on this higher plane. They were living the fullness of the priesthood, and that's why they were being so persecuted. And that these ordinances were ordinances were the higher functions of the priesthood. But after a while, he starts to get worried because they become not exclusive enough. Because again, you have this, this problem with, if you start giving the gospel to all, well, that's all fine and good, but then what makes you special? And so he starts, you know, trying to come up with ways that make the second anointing, again, more exclusive. He, reco- he records, quote, it would seem to be necessary that there should be more care taken in the administration of the ordinances to the saints in order that those who had not proven themselves worthy might not partake of the fullness of the anointings until they had proven themselves worthy thereof upon being faithful to the initiatory principles as great carelessness and lack of appreciation had been manifested by many who had partaken on those sacred ordinances, end quote. And he records this in the School of the Prophet Minutes. He sort of starts you know, establishing all these safeguards and these requirements um, that maybe you can't get your second anointing unless you're recommended by a stake president. And you maybe had to be a particularly, I think he said, quote, particularly old men get to have this. And and he starts limiting the access. And then we see Lorenzo Snow, um, who has a short um, time as prophet of the church. He starts to limit it even more, and he bases it on worthiness. Now, uh, it's important to note that f- that many fundamentalists, especially the leaders of fun- the fundamentalist movement, are men who had received their second anointing. And Joseph Musser, one of the main guys who starts Mormon fundamentalism, keeps plural marriage alive on earth, is one that has his second anointing. And he would say, quote, on December 1899, after receiving my second blessings... A messenger came to me from President Snow stating I had been selected to enter plural marriage and to help keep the principle alive, end quote. Now, Joseph Musser uses this to claim his authority. Um, and again, if all these men are given these powers to seal and to give the second anointing, and they're given the second anointing, and they're now gods, 
who are you to say that just because the government says it's illegal that you can't do that anymore? You can see, again, another case for Mormon fundamentalism. Back to historian John Berger from Dialogue, he writes, quote, In 1901, Lorenzo Snow, fourth president of the church, stated, quote, The persons who are recommended for second anointing should be those who have made an exceptional record, that they are persons who will never apostatize. So other early 20th century first presidency writings and correspondences indicate that at various times the following criteria of worthiness were applied. And then he lists them. I'm going to tell you what the worthiness are. This is sort of your temple recommend questions for your second anointing. Here they are. Number one, unquestionable and unshaken integrity to the work of the Lord. Seems pretty easy. Okay. Number two, valiant in the defense of the truth, active in all good works, have borne the heat and burden of the day and endured faithfully to the end. Okay, that, that one's interesting too, because it says valiantly defending the truth. Now, what is the truth? If this is at the turn of the century when we're giving up plural marriage, what really is the truth? What is the higher law? Who is defending it and who is not? Another requirement, number three, obedience to commandments such as tithing, law of chastity, honesty, etc., Number four, age was to be considered, but a member did not need to be old to receive the ordinance. Recipients, however, typically were often 50 years old. Number five, candidates had to have gathered with the body of the church. Faithful non-gatherers would be dealt with by the authority on the other side of the veil. So you had to be baptized. You had to be official. Number six, candidates could not be guilty of any major sins like a man who committed adultery after receiving his endowment would not be recommended even after full repentance. So that's interesting too. You kind of wanted to wait to do that kind of stuff after your calling an election was made sure. Another requirement, candidates did not have to be church officers, but it was expected that officers such as apostles, state presidents, high councilmen, bishops, and patriarchs would be worthy to receive the ordinance. Number eight, candidates for posthumous second anointings had to have received their endowments during their lifetime and therefore must have been members of the church as well. So you can't do second anointings for like George Washington or something like that. Had to be someone who was a Mormon. Uh, Number nine, usually candidates must have been married and sealed in the temple. Living bachelors ordinarily were not allowed to have deceased women anointed to them. Single living men were more frequently anointed to deceased men. Berger says, quote, specific guidance on women's recommends varied somewhat. During Wilford Woodruff's administration, the rule was not to permit a woman to be anointed to a man unless she had lived with him as his wife. According to the First Presidency letter in 1900, during President Lorenzo Snow's administration, the rule was a restriction of the rule in such case, which was obtained during the lifetime of President Young and John Taylor. After reviewing this policy, the presidency decided to restore the practice as follows, quote, any woman who has been sealed to a man in life or by proxy, whether she has lived with him or not, shall have the privilege of being anointed to him inasmuch as he shall have had his second blessings, end quote. Joseph F. Smith, fifth president of the church, followed the new rule in 1902, but by 1907, he and his counselors, John R. Winder and Anthon H. Lund, wrote, quote, It is not customary for women to be sealed to men to whom they have not been sealed after death, but whom they had not lived in their lifetime as husband and wife in the marriage relation. They must be or have been husband and wife or one flesh to use a scriptural expression, end quote. 
1904 first presidency letter denied conferral of the second anointing upon a woman whose deceased husband was not considered worthy of a recommend due to his indifference towards temple work prior to his death. Um, and I want to point out the language here. We keep saying women anointed to men, women promised to men, women sealed to men. Now, again, we're going to talk about this coming up in just a few minutes, but this idea of temple sealings, if you pay attention to the wording, faithful Latter-day Saints listening to this, when you go in the temple and you get your anointings and your endowments out, pay attention to the wording. Women are not sealed to God. They are not promising to God. They are promising to their husbands. And this is the same way. The anointings, the women are not being anointed as gods to the eternities. They are queens unto their husbands. This is the actual terms, queens unto their husbands. And even when I went through the temple, I didn't pay attention to this part. I just thought, I'm getting married. This is so exciting. I didn't pay attention to the fact I was being sealed as a potential queen and priestess unto my husband. Well, the second anointing makes you a queen and priestess unto your husband. Um, You know, by almost by the 1920s, we have nearly 14,000 second anointings perform for the living and the dead. And remember these requirements that Lorenzo Snow sort of stated, which is as long as you were a Mormon in life, you could be, uh, you could be given your second anointing posthumously. Now Heber J. Grant really sort of strips away a lot of this Mormon doctrine. And you can see why he did this. The church is now moving away from plural marriage. Heber J. Grant has taken it upon himself to really sort of move the church in a modern direction away from plural marriage. This is where we have the birth of fundamentalism starting. This is where we have a lot of, you know, the quorum and apostles and bishops and stake presidents are still practicing plural marriage. And Heber J. Grant is dealing with that and trying to move the church in a different direction. So it makes sense that he would move away from the second anointing because it gets so tied in with the new and everlasting covenant. It gets so tied in with marriage. As we see, bachelors aren't really permitted um, to have their second anointing. It's really something that's supposed to be the highest order of the priesthood. To be a god, you need a goddess. You need you need a queen and a priestess sealed unto you, at least one, but preferably more. According to Berger, quote, the records which indicate the precise date of the policy change under Heber J. Grant's administration are presently not available to historians, but on January 30th, 1926, President Grant wrote, quote, second blessings are only given by the president of the church upon recommendation of a member of the Council of the Twelve, end quote. Evidently, this is in response to a stake president's inquiry. The president continued, quote, at some time when one of the apostles is in your stake, if he feels to properly recommend brother so-and-so, the matter will be taken under advisement. This implied the decision to discontinue receiving recommendations for stake presidents for second anointing candidates was reiterated by President Grant on April 6, 1927, quote, It is not customary now for stake presidents, as you know, to recommend people for higher blessings. That matter should be taken up by the visiting apostle at your quarterly conference, and all recommendations of this kind should come directly from the apostles. Stake presidents were no longer permitted to recommend candidates for the ordinance. Rather, recommendations could only be made by members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. By 1941, just under 15,000 second anointings had been performed for the living and just over 6,000 for the dead. The church had not allowed historians to have access to second anointing records, Subsequent to 1941, therefore, the current frequency of second anointings is unknown. 
It is known that in 1942, 13 of the church's 32 general authorities had not received their second anointing. And by 1949, the practice had not had been, quote, practically discontinued by the LDS church. Though until 1981, it may have continued to be performed, albeit on a small scale. In the 21st century, a British dissident from the LDS church claimed that he had received a second anointing in 2002 while he was a stake president. And we'll talk about that in just a second. And according to historian Devery Anderson in The Development of Temple Worship, um, which I'll also link to, quote, For much of the LDS church history, the second anointing was the crowning ordinance of the restoration. The first anointing is the endowment ceremony that continues today, and it concerns blessings in the afterlife, like becoming kings and queens, priests and priestesses. The second anointing actually bestows those blessings temporally and furthermore secures one exaltation in heaven. By 1949, nearly 33,000 of these anointings had been performed, but as general authorities eventually deprived local leaders of the discretion to recommend the anointings, the practice became increasingly rare and is nearly non-existent today, end quote. Now, anointings are happening every day in the LDS temples. Most of us LDS people received our first anointing. And again, the main difference is the first anointing refers to the washing and anointing part of the endowment ceremony in which we are promised that we could become a king and a priest or a queen and a priestess unto God. But the second anointing is where you're actually anointed as priest and king or queen and priestess unto your husband. This is where it's actually happening. When the anointing is given, according to Brigham Young, the participant, quote, will then have received the fullness of the priesthood, all that can be given on earth. So you've, you've done it. You've received it. The first anointing sort of is a promise that if you're faithful, perhaps it can happen to you eventually. But the second anointing actually promises that, you've, that it's done, that uh, it's not works-related anymore, it's done. And according to Bruce R. McConkie, those who have had their call and election made sure, quote, receive the more sure word of prophecy, which means that the Lord seals their exaltation upon them while they are yet in this life. Their exaltation is assured. So this really ties into the fullness of the priesthood, which I'm talking about, which is what perhaps Joseph Smith was toying with when he was talking about restoring the fullness of the priesthood in Doctrine and Covenants 124 and the idea to build a temple in Nauvoo to help bring about the fullness of the priesthood. Certainly, this is what Brigham Young took the direction in and subsequent church leaders. Now, the second anointing is really only performed on married couples, and a few writers believe that this is because... um, in the second anointing, which women become queen and priestesses unto their husband, they're actually ordained to the fullness of the priesthood. And according to historian Mike Quinn, he suggests that this this is a suggestion that women actually receive the priesthood. Um, and there's some debate about if women actually receive the priesthood because they are anointing their husbands to, they're performing the ordinance, or if they're still just, they have their priesthood under their husband. Um. Another thing is the conditions of the second anointing. Um, it appears, at least in its early inception, that the that the second anointing was unconditional, unconditional, which 
Certainly many that received it believed that to be so. There were conditions placed on other ordinances, like if you murdered someone or you denied the Holy Ghost, that maybe those those uh, ordinances or covenants that you made were null and void. But the second anointing was different. Here's what Brigham Young said in November of 1867, quote, When men and women have traveled to a certain point in their labors in this life, God sets a seal upon them that they can never forsake their God or his kingdom, for rather than they should do this, he will at once take them to himself, end quote. So Brigham Young understood this to believe that eventually you just read some people on earth are just going to reach a certain point where you're good, you've got it. And certainly he uh, considered himself to be one of those people. But of course, there's a problem with this. And even Brigham Young would run into this, and certainly Heber C. Kimball, they were concerned about this, men who had gotten their second anointing and sort of took this as license to do whatever they wanted, which this is the inevitable uh, result of giving the second anointing to a lot of people. They just think, well, good, I'm saved. I don't have to worry about what I do. And this sort of leads to lack of control. Uh, John Berger talks about it in the article, and he talks about all the different ways that the second anointing sort of develops conditions as we get into the 20th century. And I don't have time to list those all there, but go ahead and read those and you can see how it sort of shifts into, well, yeah, the second anointing is unconditional, but now it's more of like a second promise that you can be sealed and unsealed and that and these kind of things. We do know, like like he talked about earlier in the article, that in 2012, there was a former stake president, Tom Phillips, who... Um, was a guest on Mormon Stories. And John DeLynn, you know, at first did not release that. And then it was leaked. And there was this like four hour interview where uh, Tom Phillips talks about receiving his second anointing, you know, in modern times, just a few years ago from current high leaders of the church, that both he and his wife did it, that they washed their feet, that they um, were recommended by leaders and they were asked to recommend other couples, but they couldn't, they couldn't sort of tell this to people. Um, and you know, there was some, there was some discussion whether Tom Phillips made this up. He was from Britain. I will tell you this. Uh, I have talked to a man who is of relation to general authorities. He's, um, a son. I'm not going to say more than that. He received his second anointing, um, and his story is that all of the apostles' children were called in and they received them together as a family with their spouses. And I believe this. I, I believe uh, this this man's story. I believe that it's something that's still happening. It's obviously still something that's happening to elite members of the church, something that they don't talk about. Um, Ogden Kraut theorizes that, quote, a possible explanation for the church not talking about it today is that church leaders today are teaching that the second anointing is no longer necessary for exaltation and is just a special blessing containing no further ordination. For example, Harold B. Lee, when asked about the second anointing, said, quote, you don't have to worry. You receive the ordinances necessary for exaltation. It's a special blessing given by the president of the church to men who have been called. It is not necessary to receive it, however. You have all the endowment you need to be exalted, end quote. Now, this is kind of where we're left with the, this idea of the second anointing and kind of with this idea of plural marriage. Now that the church has abandoned plural marriage, which was supposed to be the highest, you know, ordinance that you take for exaltation along with these other keys and um, blessings of the priesthood, 
what do you do when you get rid of that? What, what happens to the rest of us? Well, either God will work it out in the next life is the traditional story, or we do all we can, and maybe this is good enough. Perhaps, you know, I know Mormon fundamentalists who believe that this is what it means by the 144,000 in, in the scriptures, that really this is why the second anointing is only given to a few, because those are the people God is talking about. So if you're listening to this and you haven't had your second anointing, it's probably not talking about you. That's probably not you. If you're listening to this and you haven't practiced plural marriage, well, it's not your fault, but probably in the preexistence, you weren't quite as righteous as maybe someone who's a prophet. And this is the order of heaven. This is sort of the hierarchy of Mormonism. And this is why Mormon fundamentalists still practice plural marriage, because they believe, and there's evidence to suggest, that the LDS Church has abandoned some of the most highest ordinances for exaltation, and that's where it leaves us. So that is the story of the second anointing. I'd love to hear um, more comments in the comment section. And as always, thank you for listening to Your Polygamy. 